As Patrick left the room to retrieve his fiddle, Liz and Kate noticed that Sally was gazing up at the ceiling, smiling. Oh, how beautiful, she marveled. Her eyes darted from one corner of the ceiling to the other, as if she was watching a scene unfold before her eyes. She's slipping away. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. And then there were four. Yes, friends, we're down to our last four episodes of Season 2 as we bring you Chapter 65 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. And for this episode, uh, we're issuing a tissue alert, as Chapter 65 is a very poignant portion of the Patrick Henry story. And, well, you know, some of you might be inclined to, uh, you know tear up a little bit. I mean, not me, <laughs> but 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 uh, some might be inclined to get emotional when hearing... Oh, get over yourself, laddie. You'll be blubbering like a baby before this one's over. Oh, I will not. Now, Max, be nice to Monsieur Announcer. Thanks, Liz. He cannot help it if he is a bit emotionally weak. Wait, what? And he has trouble containing his feelings, even for the sake of the show. Now, wait a minute. I rather admire a man who is not afraid to let his feelings show, Okay. Even when it becomes uh, rather embarrassing for the rest of us. Well, excuse me for having feelings. Nothing more than feelings. <sighs> Once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and don't forget animals of all species. I was just about to say, uh, please welcome, because it's the polite thing to do, our co-hosts, Max and Liz, and where is our little mouse friend? Uh, he be on the phone. We oui, literally, he is actually... Standing on the phone. Yeah, because he's a mouse. I, I get it. Who's he talking to? I believe it is his sister, Agatha. He's calling England on my phone? Hi, lad. And uh, once again, standard rates may apply. Ah, uh, yes, Agatha. Uh, I'm so sorry. I say I'm deeply sorry. Uh, well, dear sister, we all knew this day would come eventually. And, well, we, we can't stop it. We simply must let them go. Oh, dear, this does not sound good. Uh, of course, dear girl, you're always welcome. Uh, when do you think you'll be flying in? Oh, uh, that soon, huh? Well, uh, uh, if I had known, I would have baked a cake or done some sort of preparation. Uh, I say, well then, old girl, uh, uh, till then, uh, uh, ta-ta. So, Nigel, your sister Agatha is coming for a visit, no? Indeed. She's, She's not, not bringing, bringing the, the children, children, is she? Uh, no, no, no. Rest easy. It's just her. Uh, however, uh, she should be arriving... Uh, any time now. I'll get it. No! no. Uh, probably shouldn't send a cat, Liz. Oh, oui. <laughs> Je comprends. Hello? Hello? Oh, <laughs> there you are. Hi, I'm Denny. Uh, can I take your tiny little bag? Well, if you do, old boy, 
I won't have a change of clothing, will I? I was just going to carry... Ah, I say, Agatha, old girl, it's so good to see you uh, by yourself. I'm by myself. Uh, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that. I am Osi Lass. He just meant that all your dozens of wee ones are gone. All my children are gone. What they see then? Announcer, uh, uh, lad. Yeah, I, I, I got it, Max. Uh, uh, here, Agatha, come here and. Step onto my hand. That's it. Oh, Agatha. Oh, dear. Ah, uh, sorry about that, old chap. Uh, my sister is clearly out of control. <laughs> so I can see. Here, let me get her a <laughs> tissue and uh, one for me. Uh, bonjour, Agatha. I am Liz, and we, oui, I am a kitty, but I will not harm you. Uh, tell me what is wrong, s'il vous plaît. Well, it seems I'm about to be a bit of an empty nester, as it were. All my children have grown up so fast. Well, they didn't have that much growing to do. Max, uh, you mean all of your children have chosen to move on in life? All at once? Indeed. All of them? Well, it seems Alfred, Reginald, and Winston have applied to become butlers. Basil, Quincy, and Terence are off to Scotland Yard. Oh, they will be detectives? Uh, no, they just intend to play in the yard. Desmond and Graham are headed to the continent to pack rat across Europe. And of course, many of the girls, Amelia, Beatrice, Clarissa, Daphne, Gertrude, and Penelope, all intend to find the mouse of their dreams and raise their own litters. Not to mention Oliver, Felix, Jasper, Malcolm. I say, dear girl, in the interest of time and considering the extensive list upon which you've merely just begun, uh, let's suffice it to say that the old nest has indeed become a bit more spacious and uh, leave it at that, shall we? But, Nigel, I dearly miss them already. Oh, you poor thing. This is never easy. But uh, you've certainly trained them up in the way they should go. Uh, that might be stretching it a wee bit. Uh, but they are now prepared to go out and make their mark on the world. Or just on somebody's hand. Uh, the point is, we all must face difficult times of loss. So we need to be there for others when they suffer their loss. So while we console dear Agatha and let us go see how it was handled in the Patrick Henry household so many years ago, eh, uh, monsieur? Chapter 65 Farewell, my love. Scotchtown, December 15th, 1774. Dinah hummed a Christmas song and rocked as she sat in the basement room outside Sally's bedroom, finishing her work. She bit off the thread with her teeth, and held up the off-white linen straight dress to look it over. She set down the needle and thread and frowned, pursing her lips and sadly shaking her head. I hope Mrs. Sally will be comfortable in this. She held out the sleeves, which were twice the normal length of regular shirt sleeves, and had drawstring wrists with long, thick strings dangling from them. She looked into the bedroom where Sally lay sleeping on her bed next to the wall under the windows. That poor child. 
Liz and Kate sat on the cool brick floor and watched as Dinah worked. Dinah stayed down here with Sally all the time, making sure Sally had everything she needed and was never alone. She even had a bed on the wall opposite Sally's bed, so even in the night she could tend to Sally. Lately, Sally had become violent and had nearly harmed herself. It was decided she would need to be restrained by wearing this straight dress. Cher Sally, I am so sorry it has come to this, Liz murmured softly. Suddenly they heard Patrick's booming voice upstairs and heard his footsteps making their way to the trap door where he came down to the basement from the hallway above. Patrick made his way over to where Dinah worked, and she stood to lay the dress out on the table. I just finished it, Mr. Patrick. Thank you, Dinah, Patrick answered quietly. Dinah nodded and gathered a few sticks of firewood to go add to the fireplace in Sally's room. Patrick clenched his jaw and haltingly reached out his hand to touch the string attached to the sleeves. Not all fetters are made of iron, he muttered, his voice breaking with emotion. He cleared his throat and stepped over the threshold of the doorway leading into Sally's room. He watched her as she slept. He walked over and picked up the patchwork quilt at the foot of her bed. Sally had labored on the quilt over the years, filling it with squares of cloth from the children's clothing. Do you think she remembers her children any more? Patrick asked. Dinah placed the straight dress on her own bed and walked over to touch the quilt. I surely do. Mrs. Sally sleeps under her baby's clothes, and they hold her close. Patrick held the quilt up to his face to breathe in the scent of his children. He placed the quilt on top of his sleeping wife and turned to see his daughter Patsy standing in the doorway. Dinah quietly left the room. Patsy walked over to the fireplace to stoke the fire. She then went and quietly touched the straight dress laid out on Dinah's bed. Neither Patsy nor Patrick said a word for a moment, but listened to the crackling fire. Patsy sat down on Dinah's bed, holding up a sleeve of the straight dress. Patrick came to sit beside her. "'Have I done the right thing, putting your mother down here?' Patrick wanted to know, looking around the room with the pink brick floor, curved fireplace, and ceiling with the heavy exposed wooden beams. A bird called from outside the window. "'Blue Jay,' Patsy said. A crow answered back. And a crow. Mama can hear the birds talking. That's a happy thing. Patrick looked out the basement window and smiled to hear his daughter name the birds she heard, just as he had taught her so many years ago. He looked at Liz and Kate, among other animals. He didn't tell his daughter that Sally had told him they spoke to her. No need to cause more heartache for Patsy. She was now married to John Fontaine, but had come to live at Scotchtown so she could take care of her younger siblings and manage the household, along with Patrick's mother, Sarah. Patsy put her hand on her father's back and leaned her chin on his slumped shoulder. Sometimes the right things are the hardest things, Papa. Other people would have locked Mother away in that horrid asylum in Williamsburg. That might have been the easier thing to do, but it would not have been the right thing. She picked up the straight dress. 
This will swaddle her and bring her comfort. I hope so, Patrick answered, standing to walk over to Sally's bedside table. He gently touched the looking glass and brush he had given Sally that first Christmas after they fell in love. I'm sorry I do not feel much like celebrating Christmas. It is hard for me to be merry these days. He picked up the mirror and frowned as he gazed at his reflection. I look like an old man. Patsy walked over and took the mirror from his hand. She held it up to him. Look again. I see a man who has been a knight in shining armor to his childhood sweetheart and who will take care of her until her last breath. Patrick smiled sadly and enveloped his eldest daughter in his strong arms. Together they stood there and watched Sally sleeping. Thank you, Patsy. She will always be my sweetheart. Governor's Palace, Williamsburg, December 24, 1774. Lord Dunmore heard the cries of his newborn baby as he sat at his desk. He looked up for a moment, but then dipped his quill once more in the inkwell to continue writing a long-overdue letter to Lord Dartmouth. Dunmore had to explain what he was doing out on the frontier in the war with the Indians, and why he had not responded to Dartmouth's letters from the fall. Dunmore told of Andrew Lewis's stubborn refusal to obey his orders, and how ultimately Dunmore's forces won the battle, secured a peace treaty with the Indians, and how he had returned to Williamsburg a hero. His wife Charlotte had just given birth to a new baby, and the festivities of Christmastide had consumed his time since his return three weeks before. Dunmore was briefed on what had transpired in Philadelphia with the Continental Congress, and the aftermath of action spreading across his colony. Every county is now arming a company of men whom they call an independent company for the avowed purpose of protecting their committees and to be employed against government if occasion requires, he wrote. He scowled as he thought about what the men of Virginia had done while he was out defending them on the frontier. These undutiful people should be made to feel the distress and misery of which they themselves have laid the foundation as soon as possible, and before they can have time to find out ways and means of supplying themselves. Their own schemes should be turned against them, and they should not be permitted to procure underhand what they refuse to admit openly, and above all, they should not be permitted to go to foreign ports to seek things they want. Their ports should be blocked up and their communication cut off by water, even with their neighboring colonies. And this could be done effectually with only one ship of force and a frigate of a couple of tenders. With this, and without any other force or expense, no vessel could stir out of the Bay of Chesapeake or approach any port of Virginia. The functions of every department of government, which in fact are no entirely obstructed, should be suspended and the governor and all other officers withdrawn. The people left to themselves and to the confusion that would immediately reign 
would I cannot believe soon become sensible from what source their former happiness flowed, and prostrate themselves before the power which they had so lately considered as inimical and treated with contempt. Once he finished his letter, Lord Dunmore tossed his quill on the table. He stared up at the map of the colony that hung on the wall, and his eyes narrowed at the misery of his assignment there. Cursed Virginia! Dunmore didn't know he would soon receive another October letter from Lord Dartmouth to all the royal governors in the colonies, instructing them to seize all the gunpowder. Given the tensions in Virginia, Dunmore would have to wait for just the right moment. Then he would raid the gunpowder magazine in Williamsburg. London, January 12, 1775 King George held the resolves from the First Continental Congress up to his face as he read them. All that Al could see were his pudgy fingers and the snug gold signet ring that dug into his finger. The king tightened his grip on the parchment before slowly lowering it to reveal a cynical smile. How eloquent, he commented sarcastically, allowing the resolves to fall to the floor. His eyes bored into Lord North, who stood there before him. I demand that Parliament reject these grievances, hold trade with the colonies, give protection to loyalists with our army, and arrest those colonial protesters as traitors. As you say, Your Majesty, Lord North replied with a respectful bow as the King left the room. Lord North scooped up the colonial resolves and grievances to the king and slapped them in his hand. Exactly as you say. Al's eyes widened. Uh-oh, them lordy lads will be writing up more trouble now. I sure hope Benjamin Franklin gets out of London soon. There's nothing left for him here. London, February 5th, 1775. Benjamin Franklin sat up in the balcony of Parliament, listening to the futile attempts of William Pitt to convince Parliament to avoid bloodshed with the colonies. He had suggested that General Gage remove his troops from Boston. But rather than withdraw Gage, the Parliament selected three more British generals for duty in America, and passed a bill to restrain trade and commerce with the New England colonies. The House of Commons discarded the petitions from the colonies claiming they were pretended grievances. Ultimately, Pitt's efforts were rejected, and Parliament set a course Ben knew would ultimately lead to war. He stood up, put on his hat, and went home. As Ben sat by the fire, sipping his hot toddy, he sighed deeply. Even after he had been humiliated over the Hutchinson letters, he remained in London all these months, hoping that somehow things could take a turn for the better. But after watching the response of Parliament to the Continental Congress, he knew there was no longer any hope. He went to his desk and took out a piece of paper and wrote, I cannot but lament the impending calamities Britain and her colonies are about to suffer from the great imprudencies on both sides. Passion governs, and she never governs wisely. Anxiety begins to disturb my rest. 
He looked around at his apartment and then up at the map of Great Britain hanging there on his wall. He knew it was time for him to make preparations to leave London and go home to America. It was time for him to join his fellow Americans in their fight for liberty. He touched the map with a sorrowful expression. My dear England. He shook his head, rubbed his eyes, and blew out the candle on his desk. Scotchtown, February 25th, 1775. Sally sat quietly in the chair by her bed, looking up at the birds perched in the tree outside the basement window. She was wearing her straight dress, but she didn't struggle against it. It had a calming effect on her, much to everyone's relief. Patrick walked into the room with a plate to feed her some lunch. He pulled up a chair in front of her and sat down. Okay, my love, let's see if we can get you to eat something, Patrick whispered, piercing a carrot with the fork. He held it up to her mouth and noticed a tear rolling down her cheek. He pulled back the fork and leaned in to search her eyes. She appeared to be having a lucid moment. Sally? She turned her gaze to him. I wish to be free. Patrick clenched his jaw and slowly set the fork on the plate. He set the plate over on the table and sat back down. He placed his hand on her arms that were bound to her waist. From this dress? Sally shook her head no, and uttered a faint whisper. Let me go. Her face then went blank once more, and she turned her gaze back to the birds. I cannot. Patrick swallowed the lump in his throat. He knew she wasn't talking about the straight dress. Perhaps you need to rest. Come, let me help you into bed, and I'll play the fiddle to soothe you. He wrapped his arms around her waist and lifted her to the bed. He put the quilt over her. I'll be right back. As Patrick left the room to retrieve his fiddle, Liz and Kate noticed that Sally was gazing up at the ceiling, smiling. Oh, how beautiful, she marveled. Her eyes darted from one corner of the ceiling to the other, as if she was watching a scene unfold before her eyes. She's slipping away, Liz cried watching as the room was suddenly drenched in bright light as the sun poured in through the window. I... Kate ran over and put her paws on the bed while Liz jumped up to sit by Sally's legs. We're here, lass. Sally smiled at Liz and Kate. I'm not afraid. She looked back up to the ceiling. How beautiful it is there. Get Patrick... Liz begged Kate. Kate started barking and ran to the other basement room. They soon heard Patrick's heavy footsteps coming down the stairs, and he hurried into the sun-drenched room. He set down his fiddle and rushed to Sally's side, taking her face in his hands. Sally? Sally? Patrick cried in a panicked voice, fearing he was losing her. Don't leave me! He started to furiously untie her straight dress to free her arms. He then draped her arms around his neck and held her close. Please don't leave me, Sally. Liz joined Kate on the floor, and they looked at one another as their eyes filled with tears. 
Sally breathed out a quiet whisper in Patrick's ear. Farewell, my love. Her arms slowly went limp. Patrick buried his face into her hair and rocked her back and forth, sobbing, Oh, Sally, my Sally! Liz and Kate stepped into the other room to allow Patrick complete privacy as he let her go. She's finally free, Kate whispered tearfully. Liz nodded and struggled to speak. (laughs) It took death to give her liberty. I will, said Les. That were a trying time for all of you. I say, that was beautifully told. Indeed, brilliant. And a touching tribute to your founding father, Mr. Henry. We, he was a special man. Yes, but how does this help ease my situation? Uh, well, uh, it, uh, it, it... Probably don't. Well done, old boy. Hey, I'm trying. Uh, so, uh, to take our minds someplace else, uh, why don't we get some inspiration from the author herself? Uh, hello, Miss Ginny. Max, I understand you have a question for me. Uh, can you give us some uplifting insights about this particular chapter, then? One of the hardest scenes to write was this one, about Patrick losing Sally. At Scotchtown. Uh, bump it up a wee bit higher if you can, lass. We oui, uh, tell us about the honor that you had in writing it. I consider some of my greatest honors to be that the places that give me the privilege to write on site where history happened. Like in London, in Handel's composing room, I wrote the scene of him writing Messiah in the room where he wrote it, and that was just unspeakable inspiration. And so for The Voice of the Revolution in the Key, I've done the same thing whenever I could. And the good people at Scotchtown, my friend Ann Reed, who was there at the time as the managing director, she allowed me to sit in the basement in Sally's room, the actual room Patrick had built for her, the daylight basement, where she could be safe and calm and watched 24-7, rather than putting her in this horrid asylum in Williamsburg. If you ever go to Colonial Williamsburg, go to the arts museums and they have a demonstration there and you can see what it would have looked like for Sally to be there and not to be here in this warm, safe environment where she had daylight, where she could look outside and be cared for. But towards the end of Sally's life, whatever the mental disorder was, we had long thought postpartum depression is what was going on with her. And she started slipping away. He was sometimes the only one who could reach her. And he would softly brush her hair and he would feed her and she would respond to him. And it was a heartbreaking thing for him. And consider this, think about what was happening in our nation at this time. And here Patrick Henry was, his wife is slipping away. He has six children. There was so much weighing on the voice of the revolution. So anyway, I went to Scotchtown and they allowed me to be down there for a long time by myself. And I pulled up a chair by the bed and I wrote this scene of Patrick bidding Sally farewell. And I cry every time I read it, every time I hear it. 
because it really happened and it really happened in that room. And what a lot of people don't realize is what incredible courage and bravery and the strength of God that Patrick Henry had. He was a family man. He loved Sally, his childhood sweetheart. He did everything for his family who were his priority. And with the weight of the world on his shoulders, a widower with six children, he pressed on to go through this unspeakable loss. And then in just a few short weeks, he rallied a nation to independence with liberty or death. That kind of strength and character is rare in a leader. So that's one of the many reasons why I love and admire Patrick Henry. Ah, uh, I so agree with you, madame. Uh, merci, Miss Jenny. Ah, now, wasn't that inspiring, Agatha? I suppose, in a manner of speaking, but I can't help it. I find myself so distraught. Uh, well, try to look on the bright side, mousy lass. Look at all the free time you'll have, and not having to fuss at all the wee ones all the time when they're always acting the fools, and... But you see, I never fussed at the dear sweet children. I've always been delighted to watch the little scamps romp and play. Well, well that, that explains, explains a lot. lot. Uh, I say, Agatha, old girl, uh, my cohorts do have a point. Uh, why don't you set up a system of correspondence with all the little hooli- uh, the, uh, the, uh, precious little cherubs? We have them send you letters, uh, like, for example, the little rat packers? Oh, you mean the pack ratters? Desmond and Graham? We, oui, they could send you letters and postcards from all over Europe. Hi, lass, and your wee butler boys, too. Alfred, Reginald, and Winston? How does she keep them straight? Uh, aye, uh, they could send you pictures from all them fancy castles and such. I say, brilliant. Why, dear sister, you could soon be getting deliveries from the post non-stop. You will not have time to miss them. I say, I believe I'm beginning to see your point. I shall require correspondence from them all. I say, brilliant. <laughs> Ah, uh, let me get that. Hello? Uh, cheerio to you, too. Uh, Agatha, it's for you. It's your husband. Uh, why does he have my number? Uh, Clive, is that you? <laughs> really? <laughs> really, you don't say. <laughs> well, then, how utterly splendid. <laughs> Let's keep this short. The announcer chap who owns this phone really watches the nickels, you know. <laughs> well then, love, I shall catch the next seagull heading across the pond. <laughs> Cheers. Well then, what the old boy have to say? Good news, I'm afraid. Tests back from the vet. Seems I am, um, expecting. Madame, you have a little bundle on the way? Aye? You got a wee bun in the oven, then? Uh, probably more like a baker's dozen. Oh, Trabian, your nest will be filled again before you know it. Ah, the maker giveth. And the maker taketh away, and the maker giveth a whole bunch more than. Huzzah! Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. 
And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.